If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 19 today. Psalm 19. That's in page 456 uh, in the black pew Bibles there in front of you, if you have one of those. Uh, It's page 456, Psalm 19. We live in a world that longs to know God. Many people don't know that's what they want, but it is. We're all searching for ultimate truth, ultimate joy, and ultimate purpose. These big questions about truth and joy and purpose can only be answered when we come to know the God who created all things and sustains all things by his power. But then the question comes, okay, but how can we know God? Now, for most of us, especially if we've grown up in the church, this is a simple question. We come to know God through his word, the Bible, right? And this is very true, and we're going to see that today. That's called, that's what we call specific revelation. God reveals himself specifically in his word. But today we're going to look at Psalm 19, and we're going to see two other ways that God reveals himself to us. So my hope today is that we would see that the glory of God, the character of God, that God himself is revealed in his creation, his word, and his people. So the glory of God is revealed in his creation, his word, and his people. We're going to see this in Psalm 19. So let's read together. Psalm 19, follow along with me. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalm was written by David. David starts out with an amazing statement about creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is a massively important statement for modern people. I don't know about you, but when I read those verses, especially verse 1, I can't help but stop dead in my figurative tracks. 
because I'm reminded that I'm probably missing out on something that I don't want to miss out on. You see, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Now, when was the last time you stared up at the heavens and worshiped God? When was the last time you looked up at the stars and meditated on what kind of God we must serve for him to create such a universe for us to behold? We modern people in our fast-paced, intellectual, urban mindsets are prone to miss what God is saying to us in his creation. But here, perhaps clearer than anywhere else in Scripture, we are told that God is speaking to us through his creation. The sky, and really all creation, is proclaiming the glory and majesty and wonder of God. But the great thing about God is that he never just tells us what to believe, but he gives us reasons for our belief. And in Psalm 19, David describes what this proclamation is like. How do the heavens declare the glory of God? What is it about God's creation that testifies to his glory? Psalm 19 is going to help us see how God reveals himself in the world, in his word, and in his people. So first, we see that God's creation is constant, okay? It's constant. Look at verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. God's fingerprints, his handiwork is all over his creation. Everywhere we look, we see order and life and movement even down in the cellular level, the atomic level. Even in our own scientific theories, they tell us that we cannot have motion without someone or something putting everything in motion. Despite what skeptics say, our modern scientific advances have not disproven the existence of a divine creator. They have only served to make it more logical. Because the more we learn about the stars and the planets and the seemingly infinite amount of space that exists beyond this planet, it becomes more and more implausible to believe that it all just came into being by chance. No, a divine creator, one who is bigger and stronger, must have created these things. Just try to wrap your mind around these numbers. Now, we've heard things like this a lot, right? Um, numbers about space and time, but just, just you know, bear with me for a minute here as we think about this. We all know that our planet, our planet is just one of many planets in the Milky Way galaxy, right? But how many other planets are there that we know of? Now, listen to this answer from the Institute of Astronomy from the University of Cambridge. In terms of the number of solar systems present in the universe... There are something like 30 or 300 billion stars in the Milky Way, okay? So if 10% of them have planets, which is a very small percentage, if 10% of those stars have planets, there's about 30 billion planets in our galaxy for a total, um, in, in our galaxy alone. And there are over 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, So if there's 30 billion planets in our galaxy alone, and there's over 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, then that's one with 21 zeros after it 
there's that many planets, probably, maybe, in the observable universe. That's just what we can sort of see and tell is out there. But we don't even need numbers like that to blow our minds, do we? We just have to stop what we're doing and look up. Take some time and stare at the beauty of the stars or the colors of the sunrise or the power of thunder and lightning in the midst of a storm. These things happen day after day and night after night. When we see them, we're getting a glimpse of the one who created them all. You see, the glory of God is being proclaimed all the time all around us. It's abundant and it is constant. It's never ending. And unfortunately, most of the time we miss it, even though it happens every day right in front of us. See, we're so used to the sun rising every morning, to the rain falling in the spring, to the flowers blooming in the summer that we have grown bored with it. And the wonder and the gratitude that we should have has disappeared. But that has nothing to do with God's creation and everything to do with our own sinful hearts. See, we would do well to take a lesson from our four and five-year-olds in this. They know how to appreciate God's gift of creation, don't they? Listen to what G.K. Chesterton said about this very thing. The quote's gonna be on the screen. I love this quote because it It's me, absolutely. This is what he says. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. (laughs) See, if you're a parent, you know this. My kids, they get on the swings. They never want to get off the swings. Keep going, Dad. Keep going. Or you throw them in the air. Do it again. Do it again. Okay. You know, uh, you're heavy. You know, you're eight years old. Um, Do it again. Do it again. They just want it over and over. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Church, I know that I've grown old. My heart in so many ways has grown cold to the glory of God that's all around me. Of all people, we Christians should be the most thrilled by God's creation because we know the God who made it. And in it, we see the goodness and love and power of our Father. I don't want to miss what's being proclaimed day after day and night after night. It's constant, and I don't want you to miss it either. 
But God's creation is not only constant, it's universal. Look at verses 3 and 4. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So day after day, night after night, the knowledge of God is being proclaimed by creation. And here we are told that all of that speech, all of that proclamation is being heard. But who hears it? Every human being hears it. There is no person on earth that can escape what the heavens are declaring. Every person who stares up at the, at the night sky hears something being proclaimed about God. This is what Romans chapter 1 tells us. Listen to Romans chapter 1, just a few verses, starting at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so we're wicked and we suppress the truth of God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. We suppress the knowledge of God, which we know. We we have knowledge of God. We suppress it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we are without excuse. God's power and his divine nature are clearly perceived in what he has made. We have that knowledge. Every person does. And we take that knowledge and we shove it down, push it down. We don't want it. We see in the things that God has made, there is a divine power there. Somebody, somewhere has brought these things into existence, but we don't want to know him. Our sinful hearts push it down. It's universal. So I take Romans 1 and, and Psalm 19 to mean that every person has some kind of innate knowledge of God, even if only very little and very darkened by sin. Every person who is aware of the created order has come into contact with the knowledge of God's power and divine nature. But we've chosen to suppress it. Instead of worshiping the creator, we choose to worship his creation. Mankind has never ceased creating more and more idols out of God's good gifts. But the point here is that God's glory on display in the heavens is universal. Everyone sees it. Everyone suppresses it. And next we see that God's glory is inescapable. Look at verses 5 and 6. In them, this this is the heavens, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. This bridegroom reference might seem a little strange to us, but what David is saying is that when the sun rises, it comes out the way a bridegroom comes out of his chamber on the way to his wedding ceremony. He comes out with purpose and intention, and the glow and radiance of his face shines on everyone else around him. The sun, likewise, by its very nature, does the same thing. And the reference to the strong man running his course simply means that when the sun comes out, there is nothing that can stop it. 
It will accomplish what it has set out to do. And the only thing that can stop this strong man is something stronger than him. And other than God, there is nothing stronger than the Son. So I think the point that David's making with these analogies is that the Son is so big and so powerful that nothing can escape it. It's inescapable. He wants us to sit with him and meditate on the majesty of the Son. And then once we've done that, we will say, okay, so if the Son is that amazing, how much more amazing must the entire heavens be that contain the Son? And then how much more glorious must God be who has created the Son in the heavens. Do you see how when we view God's creation, we are led to worship the creator? That's what we're meant to do. As we meditate on what God has made and we learn about it. I mean, this is what science is supposed to do for us. We, we gain information. We, we look and we view and we see the beauty and the glory that God has made. And we turn and we say, what kind of a God must this be? How glorious must he be if he created this glorious creation? This is what we have to remember about these first six verses in Psalm 19. They are not primarily about creation. They are about God. The purpose of meditating on the heavens is to astound ourselves with the glory and power of God. Our natural response to God's creation should be to worship God. That's important because there are a lot of people in the world who find great delight in creation. They love the outdoors. They talk about how beautiful the world is, and many of them dedicate their lives to caring for this world. I've met a lot of these people in my life. Talked to a lot of hunters when I was in the military. I was a recreation major in college, and so uh, a lot of people I went to school with were big rock climbers and canoers and campers, and, and, and they would talk about how they just loved being out in creation. That's, that's where they experienced God, right? But it's possible to do all of that and still miss the point. Because if, you, if your heart is not turned towards the creator, then you're missing the point of the creation. That's like viewing a beautiful painting and praising the painting while forgetting that someone created the painting. We are meant to behold the glory of God in the things He has made. And this is why when we read the book of creation, we see that For all the glory and wonder in it, it's incomplete. It's incomplete. Now, what do I mean when I say that? I don't mean that creation itself is incomplete, right? When God created and He finished, He called it good, all right? It was good. It was done. It was complete. What I mean is that the knowledge that we gain when we look at creation is an incomplete knowledge, It's incomplete for at least two reasons. First, because we're sinners and we don't understand the creation rightly. We don't interpret creation rightly, right? Um, This is inherent with imagery anyway. You can look at something beautiful 
and two, two people can look at the same beautiful thing and come to vastly different conclusions on what this thing means, right? That's a problem. We're sinners, and we don't understand creation rightly. But second, creation itself has been corrupted by sin. It bears the marks of the fall, and so creation itself cannot give a complete picture of who God is. Yes, we can know some general things about God, but if creation is all we have, we will be left confused. It's incomplete. This is why David in Psalm 19 turns from God's glory in the heavens to God's glory revealed in his word. You see, David knows that without the written revelation of God, we will make a mess of his creation. Sinful human beings are not able to rightly interpret creation. This is why almost every civilization throughout human history has turned towards some kind of nature worship, right? They come up with sun gods and moon gods and rain gods and all kinds of gods. It's the closest we can get to God if we don't have more revelation on who he is. This is why we need God's written word. It helps us interpret the things that he has made. So we have God's glory revealed in his word. Looking at verses seven through nine, we see all kinds of synonyms for God's word. We have God's law. Just just do a quick scan of seven through nine. We have God's law. We have uh, the testimony of, of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. But I'm gonna sum them all up by just calling them God's word, right? That's really what, what David's getting at, God's word. All those are just synonyms for his word. Now, more than likely, when David wrote this, he had in mind the Pentateuch, right, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. But living 2,000 years after the coming of Christ in the New Testament age, as we do, we can certainly apply these same words to the entirety of Scripture. We call it all God's word. God's written word to us. First, we see that God's word is perfect in verse seven. It's free from error. The law of the Lord is perfect. There is no error or blemish. There is nothing in God's word that should have, that should have been left out. And there's nothing left out that should have been included. This is very important for us to keep in mind. God never makes a mistake in his communication, okay, He never misspeaks. He never says too much, and he never says too little. There's nothing missing from our scriptures. They are complete. He cannot communicate in error. He means what he says, and he only says what he means to say. Verse 7, look again. We see that God's word is sure. This means God's word is trustworthy and reliable. The counsel of men will fail us, but the counsel of God can be trusted. This should be a great encouragement to us today. We also see in verse 8 that God's word is right. Another way to say this is that God's word is straight. It's morally good and righteous. It will not lead us into immorality or poor judgment. When we obey God's word, we can live our lives with a clean conscience. Verse 8, again, we see God's word is pure. It's free from sin and evil. Of course, this does not mean that God's word doesn't contain stories and examples of great evil. It certainly does. 
But the purpose of these examples is to deter God's people from disobedience and to show us that obeying God leads to a life of goodness and purity. In verse 9, we read that the fear of the Lord is clean. This is similar to the other statements. David is simply saying that obeying God's word is how we fear or reverence God himself. This keeps us from impurity and sin. In verse 9, we see that God's word is true. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This statement sums up what David's already said. It's the exclamation point that David wants to drive home to his readers. God's word is true. It can be trusted. God cannot lie. And all his ways are righteous. And it is good for us to obey him. So all of those statements, verses 7 through 9, are concerning the nature of God's word. This is what God's word is like. But David also gives us several effects that God's word has on us. I want us to pay close attention to these effects as we go through them because I think David put them in order for a purpose. There seems to be a progression that he's getting at, which I think is important. So going back up to verse 7, first, God's word revives the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. This is perhaps the most important effect that God's word can have on us. It actually revives our souls. This is something that must happen in our hearts if we're ever to repent of sin and turn to Christ. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, it's because at some point, at some point in your life, you heard the word of God proclaimed, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, your dead heart was revived, was given new life. And that moment you went from an enemy of God to an adopted child of God. This is what we pray for in our children. This is what we pray for, for our friends and family members who don't know Christ. This is why we put our confidence and hope in the power of the gospel and not in our own abilities to convince someone to follow Jesus. This is why we value the preaching and teaching of God's word so highly here at Redeemer. It's because only the word of God, illumined by the Holy Spirit, can raise our dead hearts to life. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. If you're here and you know that your heart has not been revived, if you're here today and you are still in love with the world and dead in your sin and you know it and you're hearing this message, I urge you not to resist the work of the Spirit. Turn from your sin today. There was a man who lived, his name was Jesus. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was crucified on a cross 2,000 years ago, and because of that, he bore your sin so that those who turn from their sins and have faith in Christ will have forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. That's God's word to you today. That's what the Bible is all about. So turn from your sin today, repent, place your faith in Christ, and your heart will be revived. But next we see God's word makes us wise the simple. Verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
See, God doesn't just revive our hearts and leave us alone to figure out how to live our lives. He has given us his word to guide our steps throughout our entire lives. His word is full of wisdom for those who desire to live in obedience to him. Moving on to verse 8, God's word rejoices the heart. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. When our hearts have been revived and we seek to live wisely, we will also live a life of rejoicing. This doesn't mean that we will not experience pain and sadness and suffering. But the underlying tenor of our lives will be one of joy and contentment in God. You know, over the last few years, I've come to realize that one of the primary struggles in the Christian life is maintaining joy in the Lord. I know this is true for me, and I know it's true for many of you, because I've talked to you about this very thing. If you're anything like me, your joy in the Lord tends to wax and wane with your circumstances. When things are going my way and all is right in my life, it's easy to think I'm finding joy in the Lord, and certainly sometimes I am. But when life gets hard or things don't turn out the way that I thought they were going to turn out, I can easily get discouraged and find that my joy was actually very, had a very thin foundation. Yes, my joy is there, and yes, I am growing in joy, but oh, how fickle I am when life gets difficult. Let me share a few things I think the Lord has been teaching me about joy recently. First, God is deeply concerned with your joy, okay? He wants you to be happy in him. God wants that for you. In fact, we've already seen in this passage that he's designed creation, all of creation, so that we will find delight and joy and pleasure in what he has made and who he is. So first, God is deeply concerned with your joy. He wants you to be happy. Second, prolonged joylessness should not exist in the life of a Christian. Prolonged joylessness should not exist in the life of a Christian. Okay? If we are experiencing prolonged joylessness where we have no joy, There's something deeply wrong in our hearts. Third, our joy in God never comes without some measure of pain, suffering, or sacrifice. See, this is God's way of helping us see our need for Him. When we talk about joy, I mean, think about the times in your life where you have experienced the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure in God. It's almost always through struggle, something that you have struggled with, something that you have fought for, something that was very difficult. But at the, at the end of it, the joy and the satisfaction and contentment that you had in God was so much greater than the pain that you had to experience. This is God's way of helping us see our need for Him. The next thing I've learned is that all little joys we experience in this life are good gifts from God and should be enjoyed. There's all, our lives are filled with all kinds of little joys, right? Friends, family, food, 
sex, hobbies, all of these things that we enjoy, they are God's good gifts for us, his creation. They are meant for us to be enjoyed. Enjoy them. But all those little joys are meant to point us to the ultimate joy, to God's goodness, his love, and the ultimate satisfaction we find in him. Because the truth is that any or all of those little joys could be gone tomorrow, right? If we are not grounded in the one great joy of being a child of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ, forgiven our sin, and raised to walk in newness of life, then we will not be able to weather the storms of life that will come our way. So let me ask you, where is your joy found today? What are you resting in? Is it your circumstances? Are things going well for you? Have you found yourself perhaps joyless because you're not wanting, because you're not who you want to be, or because you're not doing what you want to be doing, or you look around and it seems like everyone else's life is going better than yours? I encourage you today to turn to the precepts of the Lord. They rejoice the heart. Meditate on God's promises to you. Fill your heart and mind with them so they find their way into your regular pattern of life. Seek to find your deepest, most lasting joy in God. Looking back at verse 8, we see that God's Word also enlightens the eyes. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Before our hearts are revived, we see the world one way. But after we come to know Christ and and turn to the Lord, our eyes are opened. Things we once found sinful pleasure in don't seem so pleasurable because we know they grieve our Heavenly Father. Things that seemed so unimportant or confusing like church and prayer and singing and the Bible, they become the most important things in our lives. When our eyes are enlightened, we are able to look at the heavens and see the glory of God when we weren't able to before. This is a work that God does, and it's a gift. The world makes much more sense because God's vision of the world becomes more and more our vision of the world. This is what it means to have our eyes enlightened. And in verse 9, we see... The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. When we fear the Lord, our reverence for Him will endure forever. When our joy is found in God and when His Word is our light and we seek to live in obedience to Him, God has a way of sustaining our faith till the end. We will persevere through suffering, hardship, discouragement, and pain because our ultimate hope is not in that which is perishable, but in that which endures forever into eternal life. So far, Psalm 19, we've seen how God's glory is revealed in creation. We can read the book of the world. By the world, I mean creation. Read the book of creation and see God's fingerprints all over it. That should cause us to stand in amazement at the power and majesty of God. But that knowledge, while necessary and good, is not complete. We've sinned and our spiritual eyes are darkened. 
Therefore, we need direct revelation from God about who he is, who we're created to be, and how we can be made right with him. It's this law of God that we've been talking about that gives us true, sure knowledge of God. It revives our souls. It provides us with with wisdom in this world. It creates in us lasting and eternal joy. It enlightens our hearts to view the world differently with the eyes of Christ. And this work that God has done in us will continue. And finally, we see in verses um, 10 through 14 that God's glory is revealed in his people. So God's glory is revealed in creation, God's glory is revealed in his word, and God's glory is revealed in his people. Because as we read on in verse 10, we read this, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. That's where Psalm 19 is leading us. Have you experienced this? Do you long for God's word more than you long for money or possessions or delicious food? I mean, I love good food. Who doesn't love, I mean, that's that's in the definition. It's good food. It's good. We enjoy it, right? I love sweet things. I could just eat desserts all day. But do we long for God's word more than we long for gold or silver or good food. Can you really say that? As Christians, I think we can. Sometimes, most of the time, I hope. And then that is God's glory in you. You realize that that is God revealing his glory in you? That you don't want sinful things anymore? But that day after day and month after month and year after year, your desires are changing and that you more and more want the things that God wants, that's God's glory being revealed in you. It's my hope that we would desire the word of God more when we leave here today than when we came. That our hearts would be set ablaze by what we have meditated upon and we would stop trying to work in our quiet times during the day when we have time, and instead we, we would rearrange everything else in the day because God's word is a priority for us, and we know that without it, our hearts will grow dull, our souls will shrivel up, and our eyes will be darkened, and our joy will be lost. If that's true, then why do we have a hard time working in reading the Bible? We need God's word. Our souls depend upon it. Oh, that we would truly believe that we need the word of God more than money and more than food. So do you love God's word? Is it precious to you? I pray that it would be. But how else is God's glory revealed in us? Read on in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So God's glory is revealed in us when we confess our sins. Because when we look to the heavens and we get a glimpse of the great power and holiness of God, we realize how small and sinful we are. 
That when our hearts are changed by his word, we come to see how wicked we are and how we cannot help, and then we cannot help but fall to our knees, broken and desperate for forgiveness. So what sin or sins are stealing your joy today? What do you desire more than the presence of God in your life? What little joys have taken the place of your ultimate joy in God? What sin has dominion over you? Whatever it is, confess it today. Be encouraged by Psalm 19. Remember, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You will be cleansed of your sin, and God will preserve you in faithfulness. God's glory will be revealed in you. It is being revealed in you. And last, we see that God's glory is revealed in us as He makes us holy in heart and action. Look at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, we become what we, what we behold. We become what we behold. When our hearts and eyes are filled with the glory of God and His creation and His word in one another, we will become more like Him. Our hearts will be softened with love for God and for others. We will be slower to speak and quicker to listen. Filthy talk will disappear because it will seem out of place with the beauty and purity of God. Our desires for sinful pleasures will decrease because we know the joy that comes from obedience to God and we can live with lasting joy because we know that we have been accepted by Him. And church, don't let those last words escape you. You are acceptable to God. Yes, we are made acceptable by the work of Christ and having our sins forgiven. But please don't forget that you can live in obedience to God and He is pleased with you. We can live lives of faithfulness to God. We can. So that His glory can be on display in us. Yes, it will be an imperfect glory. Yes, it will be stained with sin. But it can be pleasing. It will be pleasing to our Father. So don't think that just because you can't live in sinless perfection that you cannot please God. Remember, just like our fathers hopefully were with us, just like we are if we're parents, God is patient and slow to anger with us. He is kind to us, and He knows that we are weak. He has designed the world for our joy, and He has given us Himself so that we are never alone. He's pleased with us. Let's turn to Him today. Let's confess our sins. Let's take steps to behold His glory in the things that He has made in His Word and in ourselves. Because not only is Christ our Redeemer, but He is our rock. He is our stronghold, our sure foundation, and our greatest hope. He is with us. Let's take time today to behold the glory of God revealed in His His world, His Word, and His people. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. 
God, we thank you that it gives us such clarity. God, without your word, we wouldn't know how to behold you in the world. But because of your word, the world makes so much more sense to us. We know our place in it. And Father, when we look at the magnificent things you have made, our hearts turn to you, the creator of it all. So Father, I pray for Redeemer Church today, Lord, that our hearts will be encouraged. I pray for joy for these people. God, that as we leave here today, God, and we go outside um, and we do whatever it is that we do day after day, that we would not be blind to your glory all around us. And as we look in the heavens and as we look at your creation, as we look at all the good gifts that you have given us, that our hearts would be turned towards you with thankfulness, with gratitude, with worship and love. And God, as we behold your glory in creation and in your word, I pray that your glory would be revealed in us more and more.